I'm just letting you into the waiting room and it always uh, goes in drips and drabs the first couple of minutes or so. So just give us a, a minute or two so we can get everyone in and then um, we will start. I can see quite a few familiar names. Thank you so much. I know a lot of you have been coming every week throughout this six week program. And uh, Roshni and I really, really appreciate it. Um, and every week we have new people too, which is great. Um, so thank you again. And um, this is the last week of Her Stories. So it's been a six week series. We've been doing this every week for six weeks. And uh, this is the last week I'm sure that uh, you'll see Roshni and I again in the future. We've already got plans of things that uh, more of what we want to do. Yeah, it's been really wonderful kind of getting to know all of you and hearing kind of your thoughts and conversations that you've had on all the various topics we've dis um, discussed over the past few weeks. Um, I've certainly learned a lot. I hope you have too and you can and you have kind of we were armoured with information to do more your own research as well um, as we kind of leave this and move on. Um, hopefully we can bring some more events for you in the future. That'd be really good. And um, it'd be good actually to get your views as well on what you'd like to see. Definitely. Um, so Roshni's just put the kind of code of conduct in the chat there, which um, was put together in the first week by participants. Um, uh, so if you're new to this session, if you could just give that a quick read, that would be great. Um, and then we've also got, um, you know, information with um, links of the, the project uh, and our social media handles. And I've got links to all of the campaigns um, that you're gonna be hearing about today and the work that you're gonna be hearing about today. Um, there's links to all of them in the PowerPoint and this PowerPoint gets sent to everyone um, afterwards automatically that's come to the event. So feel free to scribble them down as you go, but don't worry about forgetting anything. Everything will be um, sent to you. Um. Uh, so this is just the kind of run through of um, the event this evening. So we're going to have speakers and then there's going to be time for questions at the end. 20, maybe 15 minutes, because um, it'd be really great um, to hear your questions. And just to let you know, to remind you that this is being recorded. Um, so if you don't want your face shown, just please put your... Um, uh, turn your video off that would be great thank you um, and then I'm just going to do a little my final intro to her stories um, so for those of you that if you this is your first session uh, you'll be hearing this for the first time and if this is your sixth I'm sorry um, so hello welcome to everybody and thank you for attending the last her stories of this series so this is our sixth week as I mentioned um, this collaboration is um, collaboration between Newington Green Meeting House and Newington Green Alliance. Um, so Amy and I came together in the wake of the debate that was generated by the statue for Mary Wollstonecraft here on the Green. And it got us thinking about what feminism means and the stories um, of women that have shaped modern feminism in the UK today. We have a shared passion for women's stories and particularly focusing on minoritized groups and their many intersections. So for example, class, race, gender, disability, and so on. 
and therefore it was really important for us to showcase as wide a range of voices as possible, um, which I hope you feel we have done. Um, we want the sessions to be interactive, accessible to all and promote discussion in a safe, open and inclusive space. And so we are welcoming people from all backgrounds and focusing particularly on our Hackney and Islington communities. Um, as I've said, no prior knowledge is necessary and we want people to come away from these sessions feeling informed, inspired and curious to learn more. Uh, and just to mention that today's session will be slightly different from the other ones. We're not going to have breakout rooms breakout rooms but um, at the end we will have space for you to ask um, all our wonderful speakers um, lots of questions. So I'll pass it on to Amy now, thank you. Yes, so I'm just going to mention uh, about the Meeting House. So um, I'm the Programme Manager at Newington Green Meeting House, which is this building. If you're in Hackney and Islington, um, you might have seen it at the top of Newington Green. And it recently had lots of building work done and um, then was all ready to open and then the pandemic happened. So hopefully we'll be able to welcome you in, um, you know, from June onwards. Um, but the building is a historic building. It's been there for over 300 years and it's famous uh, for um, being somewhere that Mary Wollstonecraft attended and she built a school near there. So that's why feminism is very important in the work that we do. Um, but it's also about um, sharing the work of the other radicals and the radical history of the local area. Um, and a lot of the work that we do is kind of being inspired by the past, but then focusing on changes that we can make today. And I'll just you know, do a brief introduction to Newington Green Alliance. I'm a volunteer with Newington Green Alliance. Um, you can see here the aim of Newington Green Alliance is to better the lives of everyone who works or lives in and around Newington Green by building a strong and sustaining community. Now, um, so we are um, a community development charity. We really um, kind of grew over the first lockdown and beyond and up to and today we are at almost um, 100 volunteers, which is incredible because when I started this series, we were at about 70 or 80. So just in the past six weeks, we've really grown. We're, in, we're an entirely volunteer-led charity and we run kind of lots of different um, projects and events that are designed to build bonds across our diverse community. So we cover lots of topics uh, or subject areas from kind of um, anti-racism, um, to mental health, to youth groups. We have a film club that has just launched. We have kind of local news um, and, can, and lots more refugee resettlement. Uh, there's so many projects <laughs> um, that I can always forget one or two, but please do check us out. You've got all the links here in the chat. Uh, it would be great to have you more involved in what we do. And with that, I'm going to pass you on to our first speaker of the evening. And that's Rose Lewis from Sister Space in Hackney. And let you introduce yourself, Rose. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Thank you very, very much for the invitation. Um, particularly as, as it's one, it's local. I can actually walk down to your new place that you couldn't use because COVID came. Reba furnished place. We go past it all the time. It actually looks beautiful. It was beautiful before, but it looks really lovely now. Um, but 
this uh, this is quite significant really I, I love the title her stories because this is what we at sister space are trying to put across um with the adventures that we have been on with uh with our local our local council our local borough um the the title is very very apt uh we live in hackney and we work in hackney as well and um we are a domestic abuse charity working with uh, um, African heritage women and girls, uh, or people say black women and girls, um, dealing with domestic abuse and sexual abuse. Uh, we were started in um, 2014 uh, after the death of Valerie Ford and her baby by her partner. Valerie also lived in Hackney also. so. And after the court case, we, we kind of, Ngozi, the, the CEO, just realized after the court case, there was nowhere for black women to go, nowhere for anyone to go to grieve, to talk, to um, just to be together after such a traumatic event. And so hence uh, sister space, sister space began we get asked a lot of questions actually um as to why why do we need a space uh, a domestic abuse space just for black women and apart from sometimes saying well why not um women a, a lot of women and just uh, people in general but just women are surprised that they're is not a space just for black women because we know that there are spaces for all other cultures. And so it, you know, it gets taken by surprise. People are taken by surprise, by surprise. And we are trying to tell our story, just coming back to her story. I know I'm going around, but that title is so powerful. That title is so, so important. And this is what Sister Space is trying to do. We are, are not trying, we are telling our story about our experiences of domestic abuse and, um, and sexual abuse. Interestingly enough, in um, I would say in the UK, there is not a lot of research about uh, black women's experiences in, of domestic abuse. Um, most of the things that are written are written about uh, women in America but um, but also other things that are done, surveys and um, pamphlets, uh, uh, speeches, talks, everything uh, are not generally done by us in public. It's always somebody else that is talking for us, about us. Um, and uh, we've just said, you know what, I think it, it, this is time for us to talk. Domestic abuse in the African heritage community there are differences. Um, there are differences in that we go through a lot of racism, discrimination, stereotyping, and um, yeah, and stereotyping. And so there are just what seems what to be basic things which which have a huge impact on the way that services services cater for us. Um, because they don't really know 
much about us um, and it, it, it has an impact, it has a domino effect on the women uh, for their healing, for um, just um, trying to navigate the system and so on. So uh, three things that I will mention um, for women and we're telling her story again, just remember this word I keep saying, her story. So just an example, quick example, if a woman has to flee from her, from her home and she is, uh, she's gone to mainstream services, mainstream services, the majority of them do a fabulous job. We're not knocking anyone. But if this black woman was sent to an area where there are only, um, I don't know if it's just like British women uh, or just white women, and she goes into that space, her story, her story is totally neglected. When she goes to a refuge or somewhere else, she will need to have her own food. Her own food is, is it's, it's essential for her well-being. She needs to have her own skincare products, her own hair care products, which is very, very, very important. Not doing that, um, as, as we say, because you, you have to present. If you're, we have to, we have to cream our scalp, for example, we've got to cream our skin because our skin is, is very much different. Those little things that, that appear little are actually huge, massive um, things that can make the difference between the woman staying and the woman going back home because she has, she, she doesn't have anything. If she goes somewhere, and uh, she goes to church. There are no churches that, that she can identify with. Again, um, she will probably not, she will probably go back. In the churches, the churches have a, 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 a lot of the churches have a lot of women in the church. And her story is important. Her story in that church is important. Her story about who she is, her cultural heritage, and everything about it is is very is very important. Um, mainstream mainstream do work hard, um, but it, it's not enough. There are issues. There's language issues. There's immigration issues. As we say, there's racism. There's um, issues with with the police and the way that that women uh, black women are treated. And all these things that I've just mentioned, our story is not told. And who is the best person to tell the story? It is us. If we tell our story, then we can, all of us can benefit from hearing our story. Um, at the moment, there are uh, a, lot of, a lot of groups who are having issues because there's been a lot of cuts. I know, um, there's, yeah, there's been a lot of cuts in services, and all these women, they, we all, we all say the same thing. When the government or whoever it is are doing all their policies and the, the the new even the domestic abuse bill that's coming up, they don't talk to us. Somebody else is telling our story, so her story is 
very, very important. Our story is very important. And this is why we call ourselves sister space. Sister, we're, yeah, we're all of us within that group are sisters. And we've got outside sisters as well, which is like you all, because everyone, you know, we all got a story to tell and we can link those stories and we can make, we can actually make things a lot better. So this is who Sister Space is about. It's, um, uh, thankfully we, we got some money um, recently and we are going to actually do some research which hasn't been done before um, in, in Britain actually. We are one of the very, very few um, organizations that are strictly for African women, uh, African women and girls. Um, as you all know, we, I don't know if you all know, but we had this huge battle with Hackney for a safe space for um, African heritage women and girls. Um, it was the only good thing about it, I would say, is that it's put domestic abuse on the agenda everywhere around the world where we just keep talking about it, where we're trying to get um, you know, everything better, just better services, better awareness, better everything for all the women, not just for the African heritage women, but for all women who are going through domestic abuse. And that was the good, uh, the good thing about Hackney. And what I would say, uh, I don't know if my minutes are up, but what I would say, and I always say, we need to just keep talking about domestic abuse. We in the African heritage community, because we don't want people to know our business. It's like, why are you going to the police for? Why are you going to the social? Why? Don't do this, don't do it. Speak, we got to keep talking. We got to be having conversations about domestic abuse. We have to keep talking to our young people so that all these cycles that we're going through, all this fighting that we're going through, we can make things easier for our young people. They are going through a, a horrendous time. Um, and and especially, especially as you know, with all this COVID business going on as well, we will never know the, the, the real stories that's going on. But the young, the young people are literally going through a lot of what adults go through. And we don't know these young people, her stories of what they're going through. And this is why we just have to keep talking about it. We've got to be honest about it. We've got to um, teach them that they must tell their story. Very important. They tell their story. Stop having other people talking um, about us to us. And 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 also just my uh, one thing about the, this whole thing about BAME, um, black and ethnic minority, something or another. First it was, anyway, yeah, we do not subscribe to BAME. I'm still trying to find out, somebody told me it was Tony Blair that came up with that word, BAME, black and ethnic minority. That's just too broad. It's, um, it's discriminatory. It's not nice for any of us who are here that you're not calling us who we are, that I am from Africa, I am from this place in the Caribbean, I'm from this place in India, or I'm from Java. I don't know what's so hard about them saying it, but lumping us together in there, and there's not even her story in that. You're just BAME. That's it, BAME. Yeah, so, um, yeah, I, I, just, I just love this, 
this this concept of her story and um and thank you all i hope your the other five weeks really um is going to get you all to put to put things together to local especially local yeah and and especially this past two years this past two years uh, with the covid now so much stories have been lost so much stories that you'll never be able to capture so many experiences that need to be told in hackney and and sorry did i miss that hackney and stop yes so yeah thank you thank you for this i'm just stuck on her stories so so important yeah and this is this is sister space telling our story thank you rose Thank you so much, Rose. Um, yeah, really great to hear about the, the work you've been doing and why a space like yours is so necessary. Um, I really urge everyone to do their, their, some more research on Sister Space because you do wonderful work. Um, I'm going to now introduce you to um, Harini Yenga from Women's Equality Party. Welcome. Thank you. It's a, it's a pleasure to see you all tonight. Thanks for coming. I know that going on a Zoom isn't everyone's favourite thing to do after some of you have been working on the computer all day anyway. I'm, I'm happy to be invited, especially because Roshni is somebody I know in another role she plays, which is as co-chair of the Women's Equality Party is LinkedIn branch. And she works really hard and successfully in that role. Um, and it's an, also a nice invitation for me because I had a chance to speak before in Stoke Newington Green when um, in your hall. Now I just found out from Rose, I need to see it again. And that I was invited in the general election campaign of 2017. And it, I felt a bit of a fraud because I was invited to speak at the Stoke Newington Literary Festival, which seemed really too glamorous for me. But it was really interesting discussion. And I think that um, the chance to... to there's not many chances to do anything in lockdown, but trying to learn something new and listen to people and educate ourselves is probably the best use any of us can make of the time. So I don't have much time. I've got 10 minutes. What, what I really want to talk to you all about is about the budget today. And I want to talk to you about why there's a problem in this country and in London with paid care. I want to talk to you about our Sanctuary City campaign, which follows on well from what Rose was saying, and that sanctuary city is about the position of migrant women. And as Rose was saying, you can't just say, you know, minority women or BAME women or women who face domestic abuse. The, the, that particular group that that campaign is about is about migrant women with no recourse to public funds who, who are not protected. But as I've got 10 minutes, please ask me questions about those. So I'm going to, to do as I've been invited to and use the rest of the time to tell my story. Um, my name is Harini Iyengar and I've been invited because I'm the lead candidate for the Women's Equality Party in the London Assembly elections, which are happening on the 6th of May. And my, my story to stand as a candidate and, and get selected by the members to that role, and it, it matters to me the most out of any election I've done so far because I'm the number one candidate, which means that our Women's Equality Party members voted me into the position so that if we can get our first seat, that will be allocated to me. Um, and my story begins, um, well, that's stupid, obviously it begins when I was born, but it matters because we've been talking about race and identity. The reason I'm here today is because my parents are Commonwealth immigrants from India. 
they were invited over to the UK as doctors to work in the NHS. And I feel proud of that because sometimes we've been treated as if we're not welcome over the years. And they were lucky to be invited here and they both spent their whole working lives working in the NHS until they retired. And they had experiences in those days of being treated, no, not being given equal opportunities in their job, even though they were skilled and trained people. And they were in a caring profession. So if you do ask me questions about paid care, I think, um, you know, people superficially want to talk about what it means to be in a caring profession. But when it actually comes to paying a London living wage, for example, the will is not there. And it's been a dead silence in today's budget about actually acknowledging the people who do paid care. And, and a whole other topic is unpaid care. And so partly because of those reasons, my mother also had experiences of sex discrimination working as an NHS doctor. Her career turned out really different from dad, even though they had the same qualification. So one of the, the results of that was that they sent me to a private school. I and I ended up going to Oxford University. I did a law degree and now I'm a barrister. Now that's relevant because those are my privileges. Then everyone has their privileges and their disadvantages. And that's why we need to listen to people's stories. When I was doing my professional training, I found myself um, to be, I was pregnant and my relationship ended. Um, so I was do, in the middle of my professional training, I had a baby as a single mother on my own. Now from my parents' traditional Indian community, as well as the very posh community I was in at the bar, the, that white community, that was not the way to behave. And um, a lot of people didn't understand why I became a mother and why I even wanted to, to put myself in that situation when my, um, when my boyfriend left. And at that point also, all of the political activity I'd done became inaccessible to me. I had been active at Oxford. I've been debating in the Oxford Union. I had um, a good political awareness and I've been campaigning. I was thinking when Rose was talking now about what we used to, you know, BAME or what used to be called equal opportunities, then it was called equality, then it was called diversity, then it's called equality, diversity and inclusion. But it's always really about prejudice. Um, like now it's hashtag Black Lives Matter. But then I remember when I was doing my professional training, people were talking about Stephen Lawrence's murder and they were talking about the McPherson report and they were talking about institutional racism. And then I go back further. I remember when I was a little kid, my mother used to always watch the news. And I remember she was, when I was quite small, she was teaching me there were riots in Brixton and Tottenham and Mossside um, and Toxteth. And she was trying to explain to me why people were angry. And then the Lord Scarman did a report and then that's what the buzzword was. And we founded a political party because we're tired of this talk and we want actually to have change. And we want to have some truth telling about the realities of where the money's going, who's getting their needs met and who isn't. So I became a founding member of the Women's Equality Party in 2015. And that was after many years of feeling really alienated and thinking that politics is not for me. I mean, it literally wasn't for me because if you had a baby in those days, there was nowhere where you could go to a political meeting. They'll be having meetings in the pub. There would be you know, you'd probably be the only woman at the meeting anyway, and about 20 years younger than the other people in the meeting. I was able to kind of deal with that before I had a baby. But after I had a baby, it was finished. I couldn't afford babysitting because it's, I could barely afford the childcare to go and do my job. The idea that I would get a babysitter and go to a political meeting in the evening was really, you know, a big joke. 
But when the Women's Equality Party was founded, we've been talking about it this week, actually, it's six years ago since Sandy Toxvig and Catherine Mayer founded it. I saw the pictures in the paper and honestly, I thought, here are some white celebrities doing something. And I was quite cynical. But in October, because I like to see for myself. So in October, I went to the policy launch to see for myself. And when I listened to the policies, I was really impressed. One of my areas of specialism is equal pay and anti-discrimination law. And when I heard the equal pay policy and the other policies, I knew that they were they really made sense. They're based on the facts, they're based on the evidence and the reality. And I hadn't seen that before. And actually a woman I knew professionally went on the platform and she told the, what the equal pay policy is. And I knew that she knows what she's talking about. And I thought, here's a real political party where they actually listened to some women before making the policy. And they made the policy thinking of women instead of just making the policy and then adding a footnote about women and minorities. Um, and so then I signed up and then since then it's been a bit of a whirlwind for me. I've become completely sucked into political campaigning. And the main thing for me was that my childcare was paid. Every time I've stood for election, I've had to, if, for example, if I had been going to the meeting tonight in Stone Newington Green, my childcare would have been paid for. And that made the world of difference to me. Not, not literally, because over six years, it's, it's a lot of childcare that I would have been paying out of my taxed income. But just the idea that I was valued, somebody would actually pay that childcare and so that I could come along and take a part in it made a huge difference to me. And um, I, it's, it's been a really wonderful opportunity for me. I've stood for the London Assembly in 2016. I didn't have to pay, you have to pay to stand in a public election. And that, there are so many associated costs to try to get elected to public office. I, it's, it's really a barrier and it, it, our party has made it possible for me to stand and to get that experience, speaking in public meetings, speaking in hustings, talking to voters, helping to write the manifestos because I'm also an elected member of policy committee. It's really changed things for me. I've stood for Parliament, I've stood for the London Assembly, I stood for Hackney Mayor in 2018, I stood for two council seats. And then I was able to be selected as our lead candidate. So in 2016, our party was nine months old and as a baby party, we managed to get 3.5%. If we can get up to 5%, then we'll win our seat this time. And I think that will be really amazing because we've had a, We've had much more influence as a party without an MP and without someone in the London Assembly than I really understood. I always wanted to have, not on a power trip, but actually I want the power to set the budget. I don't want just to be listened to by a group of men who, who are setting the budget. So, so I want to be an elected official and I want us to be there and voting and in those arguments on the inside. I don't want to be just a campaign group who, when they want to open the door and meet with outsiders, they'll come and listen to us or pretend to listen to us. And so I, I'm, I'm very excited about this election because, you know, the, the journey is important as a part of your story and the campaigns that I've lost I've, I've learned so much and I met so many people and it's been an education for me that I needed to have. But I don't want to stay at this level. I want us to be a, a party with an elected representative. And these connections that we've made over the last six years, including, you know, for, for example, Women's Equality Party Hackney Branch has been trying hard to support sister space. 
I know that as soon as I said I'm coming tonight, Women's Equality Party is LinkedIn branch said oh reclaim holloway are wonderful i'm so happy that you're going to meet them now we've been trying to support them so when you know if and when things go well for us on the 6th of may and please um i must ask you directly please help me please vote for the women's equality party on the orange ballot paper then we would go into the london assembly with all of those stories that all of us have accumulated from our supporters um, and the people who challenged us over the past six years because those, um, those voices are not being heard. And um, you know, in my job as a barrister, I'm an advocate. And so I see my role, if I can get elected, to be an advocate for the people who don't get listened to. So um, thank you for inviting me to come and tell my story. And uh, I hope that there's some space in the questions for me to tell you more about the Sanctuary City campaign and the um, campaign for paid carers. Thank you so much, Harini. Um, it was really great to hear your story. I've heard some of your story before, but it's always great to hear, to see kind of where, what your kind of beginnings were and where you've got to today. It's been an incredible amount of hard work for you. Um, I'm going to quickly move on to our next speakers. Um, they're from Reclaim Holloway's just mentioned. So I'd like to introduce um, Rachel Showiger and Carly Guest from Re Reclaim Holloway. Welcome. Hi, thank you. Um, hi everyone, I'm Carly Guest um, and yeah, thank you for having us here. It's, um, it's great to be here and to listen to, um, to everybody else as well. So uh, as, um, as you said, Rachel and I are from Reclaim Holloway, so um, we're just going to kind of give a bit of an overview of, of that campaign um, that you may or may not be aware of, I know some of you are. Um, so just uh, to in case for anyone that doesn't know, Holloway uh, Prison is a women's prison in North London um, and it closed in 2016. So the closure of the prison was sort of presented um, by the government as part of a strategy to modernise and improve prison conditions. So um, it was talked about in this, in this, using this very kind of progressive and reformist narrative. Uh, but the closure of Holloway actually provided a very lucrative opportunity for the government. There was this um, central London piece of land that as you can imagine was worth an awful lot of money. Um, and actually looking at the, the impact of the closure on, on the women and a lot of organizations that worked in Holloway, um, it, it has had a very negative, ne negative impact. So Reclaim Holloway as an organization have been concerned with thinking about the impact of the closure on the women who were imprisoned in Holloway and um, the organizations that had relationships to the prison, as well as thinking about what a suitable legacy would be um, on the site. And Rachel's gonna talk a little bit more about that, about how Reclaim Holloway have been campaigning and um, agitating for what happens um, to, to the prison site. Um, the impact on the women and the services has been significant. So most of the women who still had sentences to serve um, when Holloway closed were moved to sites um, quite far out of London. And they, a lot of those women have reported that they've experienced fewer visit, visits um, from family and friends, that they've been negatively impacted by, um, or that the move has negatively impacted what many women saw as a, a familiar or a at times supportive relationship with um, staff at the prison 
Um, and they've also experienced a reduction in support, so from organisations. So there were a large number of organisations that grew out of Holloway, so that were set up by women who'd had experience of, of um, being imprisoned in Holloway um, and were supporting women whilst they were in prison, but also after they left prison. So this is organisations like Treasures Foundation, Birth Companions, Women in Prison. Um, and these organisations, as you can imagine, and as, as Rose um, mentioned earlier, are working under immense sort of financial pressure that a lot of third sector and charity organisations um, are. So, so they're now, they're London-based organisations that are working in a London-based prison. So now that a lot of the women have been moved out and Holloway is closed, um, they can only offer reduced levels of support um, in the prisons that the women have been moved to. So then they've also lost this long-standing relationship that they had with Holloway. Um, and there is a need for these services in the prison, considering the high levels, um, the high numbers of women in prison who have experienced trauma, who have mental health issues, who have experienced addiction issues, who um, have been victims of violence and abuse, um, experiences of homelessness, and so these are the kind of organisations that were supporting, supporting women both within and beyond the prison. Um, and a lot of that support has been uh, lost or, or fractured. Uh, Rachel is going to talk a little bit more about the different kind of groups and, and individuals that are involved in Reclaim. But um, lots of the women who have had experience of that move from, from Holloway to another prison um, or, or that had had that experience of being in Holloway would talk about, have talked about how they were more able to access the support they needed inside the prison than outside the prison. And so a lot of this was lost when Holloway closed, but it also highlights the real need for reliable and plentiful and sustained support, access to support outside of the prison system, um, if, if we're able to and going to imagine a world where, where we're not relying on prisons um, and certainly not relying on prisons to provide that kind of, um, that wide range of support. Um, so I'll hand over to Rachel to just talk a little bit more about the, um, the campaign um, and the women's building in particular. Thank you, Carly. Thanks everybody for coming and for the invitation as well. And it's so great to be on a panel with such inspirational women as well. Um, so yeah, I'll talk a little bit about just the Reclaim Holloway campaign and where we are now with it. Um, so focusing particularly on the women's building that we want to see built on the site where Holloway used to stand. Um, so Reclaim Holloway as a coalition was set up in 2016 after the closure of the prison and it brought together a broad range of people who were interested in what was going to happen to the site for a range of different reasons. So it was recognizing the kind of cross-cutting issues that kind of were represented in Holloway, but also thinking about the potential of the site and what could be done on that site and not wanting that site to be handed over to developers to turn it into luxury flats. So there was a group that came together in a bit of a ragtag way, really, um, who recognized not only that there needed to be, this site needed to be a space for public good, as well as an appropriate legacy for Holloway Prison and thinking about what women suffered there and what it represented in terms of women's needs and in terms of women's punishment as well. 
Um, so the kind of issues that were highlighted from the coalition in the early days and have continued till now, we're thinking about social housing as a massive issue that is required in Islington as well as across a lot of London. Um, thinking about the need for green space and particularly, and something that Carly and I have been particularly um, interested and passionate about is this, uh, this notion of a visionary transformative women's building. So a space where the services that Carly was talking about that used to be provided in a punitive environment in the prison could actually be made available in the community in a supportive way, a non-punitive way, and to really, you know, create a legacy for the building that means that women's needs are actually being served in the community rather than in prisons. Um, so the coalition was built from you know, a group of people who just gave up their time and continue to give up their time. So local residents, women's support organizations, including a lot of the organizations that were working in Holloway before it closed, um, former prisoners, architects, prison abolitionists. And I must say that most people who got involved in the project after a while, everybody became a prison abolitionist because once you start to learn about why people end up in prison, there's kind of no alternative. Um, there was architects, planners and developers, uh, academics and researchers and housing act activists as well. So lots of different people coming together to think about what what should happen on this site? Like what, what should happen on this site? Um, and working really hard to raise awareness in the early days and to make sure that local people actually knew that the prison was closed and that there was an opportunity to intervene to make sure that the space could be used for public good. So what we've been doing is trying to set out a vision for the site that's visionary, that is optimistic and hopeful, and that's in line with what is needed by the local community and by London more generally, and specifically thinking about women and women's needs. So what we've been doing over the years include um, having public events, so vigils, um, other kinds of banner making sessions, preparing protests outside the prison to raise awareness, um, doing a lot of social media stuff, setting up street stalls as well to try to engage people because many people in the local area didn't know and might still not know that the prison had even closed because it's such a secretive institution in lots of ways. And also we've been engaging in formal processes. So a really important win a few years ago was where we mobilized a lot of support to get people to fill in a local consultation about what should happen on the site. So this meant that a particular document called the Supplementary Planning Document that was created by Islington Council, that lots of people fed into that and fed into it about wanting green space, wanting social housing and wanting a women's building, which means that the document that was produced is it has those criteria built in. So when the developers bought the site, it meant that they had to provide a high level of social housing. They have to build a women's building and they have to provide green space. So that wouldn't have happened without the kind of community mobilization that we managed. So when Peabody, the developers bought the site with a massive loan from Sadiq Khan, the mayor as well at the time, um, they had to deliver these criteria that were built into the documents. So at the moment now what's happening um, so Reclaim is working with another community group called Community Plan for Holloway. 
which is also you know a group of local residents and many other people who have come together to to kind of push this forward um and they actually have paid staff which helps you know people who have a lot more kind of sustainability with their time um, and we've just been sustaining pressure on key issues and have really managed to kind of enter into conversations with people with power um, in a meaningful way. So thinking about the women's building in particular, we've been having co-production meetings with um, the council and with uh, Peabody and the architects that will be designing the women's building. So these have been useful. I feel like we've been bringing her stories into those conversations and trying to show the developers what's important about this building and why why it's needed. Um, so just to say briefly, I know I'm probably coming up on time, but the kind of distinction that we draw between a women's centre and a women's building, which is quite an important one, women's centres tend to be linked to the criminal justice system. They're often kind of an expansion of surveillance and punishment is often where women might have probation meetings or have to go to therapy or something like that as a, as a result of probation. Whereas what we want is a transformative women's building that isn't linked to the criminal justice system and that serves women whether they've had contact with the criminal justice system or not. So for that not to be any kind of um, a surveillance tool for women, you know, just a genuine supportive space and for it to be inclusive, accessible and pioneering. So for it to be a visionary space that London can be proud of, right, that we're actually serving women in terms of social justice rather than criminal justice. Um, so, yeah, like we want the building to have therapeutic spaces, to have practical support and to offer the kind of sustainable space for organisations that actually support women in the community, to have co-working spaces, social enterprises and um, creative spaces as well. So really kind of a holistic approach to supporting women. Um, and I'll finish by saying that, you know, Carly and I and the rest of us at Reclaim Holloway, we've just been working on this issue and so passionate about it for many years because we really feel like this is the only kind of fitting legacy for the women who serve time in Holloway who have been let down abandoned by the state sent to prison because they're marginalized in the first place often and that this is a way of really paying tribute to that history um and doing something different you know so I'll leave it there thank you brilliant Thank you so much, Rachel, and for kind of sharing the stories um, of the women and, and of Holloway Prison. I agree, I think maybe there are lots of people who don't know what's happening just around the corner from them. So again, I urge you to do more research on that. Uh, and then I'd just like to um, introduce you to our last speaker, Wendy Forrest. I'm sorry, we're going slightly over, so we will we'll still have questions for at the end if people don't mind just hanging on for a few minutes. And um, welcome, Wendy. Thanks, Roshni. So from her stories of um, today to her stories of the past. So I'm here to tell you about uh, a book that's just been put together uh, entirely by women from <laughs> Hackney about the stories of, uh, of women from Hackney. And we're featuring uh, 113 women across six centuries and from a really broad range of experience. And they're by no means just uh, famous women because ordinary women's lives can be very illuminating. So we have 
factory workers who've led strikes that have changed labor history and um, also factory workers who've inspired theatrical revolutions. I'm gonna rattle through this because I know we're, we're short on time. Uh, we have shop workers, but we also have royals and uh, courtiers. We have women who um, are part of female institutions that people may have heard of in Hackney. Uh, but we wanted to get to the stories of some of the women who were actually in those institutions. And so, for instance, this is Minnie Green, obviously not her real name, uh, who was part of the Ayers home for Indian nannies abandoned in this country. Minnie took her abusive employers to, uh, to court. They were both physically violent and uh, uh, financially exploitative. She won and then she found refuge in this home in uh, King Edwards Road. So uh, we've also got, they're not all by any means saints or, or, or heroes. Uh, we've got bad women, we've got murderers and blackmailers and uh, a woman like this, who's a kind of complicated, um, Mina Turner, she was a baby farmer and Victorian women who uh, had very few forms of support needed somewhere to put their children and they were at the mercy of people who would exploit them in this way but equally many of those women needed a job like this. We've got obviously lots of uh, great fighters for votes for women um, so of our suffrage campaigners probably the favourite is this woman uh, Edith Garrard who was a jujitsu expert and she set up the suffragette bodyguards um, and she was reputed to throw policemen over her shoulder, which was obviously, you know, a useful skill. Um, we've got other bold and daring women. So uh, Margaret Graham, who was the first woman who was, uh, flew solo flights as a, a, an aeronaut, a balloonist. And she had a long career, was very popular, uh, and also managed to fit in having eight children. And then on the, uh, the other woman in the car was the first British female racing driver, Dorothy Levitt. And um, she's reputed to have uh, launched the rearview mirror because she got out her cosmetic mirror to make sure that she could see what was going on behind her. And people thought that was a pretty good idea. So uh, it being Hackney and being creative, there are lots of writers and artists across the centuries and, and we cover six centuries. So um, on the left here is Beatrice Hastings and she was a journalist and uh, a polemicist, a dramatist. She did all kinds of writing. This was painted by her lover, Medigliani. Uh, but she had um, many other lovers amongst the, the uh, kind of bohemian turn of the century uh, Parisian crowd and British. So Catherine Mansfield, the writer, was also one of her lovers. Um, on the right here is uh, Helen Chadwick, and she was an artist who lived in Brett Road. So that was a kind of squatted artist community. And so she was one of the women squatters that we really have to uh, have to commend for saving Broadway Market and London Fields from wholesale uh, redevelopment. But she was also a celebrated artist. 
there were um, a whole load of um, music hall artists. This is Hetty King. She was uh, she was a, a male impersonator. That was her kind of speciality. Um, but you can see she also uh, went out in her finery after she'd finished work. Other women on the stage at that time, this is Belle Davis who came over from America, from New Orleans, we think, stayed a long time and sort of equally beautiful um, and glamorous. This is Hilda Trevelyan, who was the first um, of Peter Pan's Wendy's on the, on the English stage. Uh, but also uh, uh, a fighter for votes for women. Uh, we go, as I say, right back, in fact, to the 1400s, but just to give you a woman who was around for the roots of sort of Newington Green and the dissident community, this is Hannah Trapnell, and she was one of the first women preachers around the, uh, around the Civil War. And women hadn't previously been able to preach, and actually she wasn't particularly um, given credit as a woman preacher, but she was allowed to preach because she said that she was a vessel for the, uh, for the voice of God. But it was a pretty powerful voice, and it was one that rattled both Charles I and Cromwell. Uh, she ended up in the, in the tower, but she was supported by other dissident women and uh, managed to, to come out of there. The very last woman in our book is Khadija Say, um, and she worked in a, she's an artist, and she worked in a gallery in Hoxton. She was chosen to be, selected to be the, the youngest artist uh, who ever represented Britain at the Venice Biennale, which uh, was a huge deal. So uh, she took her work there, which explored her um, Gambian and British dual heritage. She, that was very successful. She was destined for great things. Very shortly after she came back, she died on the 20th floor of Grenfell Tower with her mother. She was just 24. Uh, one of the things that I really liked about doing the book was, was the kind of connections that there were between women right across the ages. So we had um, two women who murdered their own children. Elizabeth Chivers was abused by her employer and drowned her daughter in Clapton Pond, driven, I think, to desperation. Louisa Massett um, beat her son to death and left his body in Dalston Station and went off to Brighton with her teenage lover. And it's sort of less easy to find a, a, a good excuse for what she did, but uh, nevertheless, she's interesting. And um, just looking at the, some of the very famous music hall people, on the right here is uh, Mary Lloyd, and she's in a, a, a pantomime boy costume. So, those kind of male roles were taken on by most of the, the musical artists because that whole gender reversal thing is so old. It's absolutely not something new and it's always been part of sort of subversive performance and, and challenge to established authority. Um, and on the left is uh, Nellie Power, also a famous uh, woman of the musical stage and she's being Sinbad. 
So it's it's challenging that they'd be taking the boy roles, but they're also showing quite a lot of leg and kind of Kardashian levels of curve. So there's there's quite a lot going on there, I think. Um, and I certainly started out thinking that around 1900, we've got a whole bunch of suffragettes and we've got a whole bunch of musical women, but actually I hadn't appreciated how much there was uh, an overlap between the two. So lots of those artists and actresses were members of the Actresses Franchise League and Mary Lloyd, for instance, um, smuggled uh, suffragette campaigners onto the stage. And there were also the women who, who ran the creative industries. So uh, on the left here is Alice Marriott who ran the Standard Theatre in Shoreditch. She's, um, she also cast herself quite regularly. So I think she's dressed up here ready to go on as Hamlet. But in other productions, she played both Romeo um, and in uh, separate production, Juliet. So she wasn't gonna let any plum roll uh, go unplayed. And then on the right, here's Clara Ludsky, and uh, she, she started the Rio Cinema, so she was a real pioneer of uh, high street cinema uh, and quite a breakthrough there. So that's just a few of the, of the many women that we featured in the book, and we know that we've still just sampled um, just a few of the enormously interesting women across Hackney. So we're also looking for ideas about how we can update and extend that. So thank you. Wow, amazing. Thank you, Wendy. That is so fascinating. Um, I really look forward to having a good leaf through that book. Um, we are going to open up the floor now for questions. Um, please put your digital hand up or put your pop your question into the chat. But we're going to start with Rona's questions. It came um, earlier on and that's for Harini. And she's asking, um, where does WEP stand on welfare reforms as they apply to disabled people? Are they in agreement with current government policy and where do they stand on universal credit? Thanks Rona. Um, you are, that's a lot of questions. So. Welfare reforms, I mean, whether you want to call them reforms is also a political question. I think, you know, we would say there's been a lot of negative changes to to um, the changes that have happened. So they're not really reforms. They've been very negative for so many people. I think it's too general as they apply to disabled people. So I, I don't know really how to start answering that, except to say that we have a deputy leader in the Women's Equality Party who's a wheelchair user and we have a very active disability and long-term health conditions caucus and we've been I, I don't think you, we, that we would be saying well, you add on something to the the current state of affairs on welfare um, to, to meet disabled people's needs because they have many different needs and for example in terms of London Assembly there's a panel about um, to look at COVID, there was no dis disability representative on that at all. And so our party leader and one of our London Assembly candidates, who, who is also disabled, wrote to Sadiq Khan to say that it's not acceptable. There's no disabled representative on that panel looking at COVID in London. We didn't even get a reply from him. But after several weeks, he's put a disabled representative on that panel. I think that um, there's a long journey to get disabled people listened to. I mean, we when I was starting my career 
20, 25 years ago, we were still trying to tell people about sexism. And I think, you know, we tried to have an intersectional party. That's why we had a women's equality party. But in terms of being intersectional and, and saying that um, you have to see people's race, you have to see people's socioeconomic background, and you have to see whether they're able-bodied or... And then when you get into disability, there are so many different kinds of disability, physical and mental. There's a big gap of disabled people's experiences. Are we in agreement with current government policy? In terms of the welfare state and social care, no, we're locking horns with them constantly. We have a feminist economic policy, and I'm, I'm part of that because equal pay and gender pay gap is one of my professional areas of expertise. I've written a book about gender pay gap reporting. And we think that the current labor market doesn't value women's labor. So leaving unpaired caring aside, jobs that women tend to do, we've seen it today, nothing about social care. At the beginning of the pandemic, people were saying, oh, now you can see who's actually essential. Now you can see who's critical. Let's all clap our hands for the nurses and hospital porters and the midwives and the doctors. Um, can I can I say something? Um, I, could you, could, could, just in the interest of time, could you say where you stand on universal credit? Would you... If it, would you uh, agree to keep the system as it is, or um, is that a system that you feel should be scrapped and replaced with a fairer welfare system? We have a detailed policy on, on this, but in terms of what's the issue being debated now is this £20 increase and whether it should be sustained, and we say it must be made permanent. Right, okay, thank you. Um, and next, I think we had a question from Grace here in the chat. I think that's for you, Wendy. Um, it says, um, how did you come up with the decision of which women to put in the group uh, and where and women of colour that were involved with this project? Sorry, I think I mangled that. If you want to add to that, Grace, please do. Yeah, hello. Um, I asked a question, um, Wendy, because I've grown up in Hackney. I've been here for um, over 42 years now. Um, and I just wondered how you came up with a decision to um, include which women and also were any women of colour part of this project? Okay. So uh, we have um, got quite a random group. We kind of came up with 113 to emphasize that it's fairly random. And we know that it's, uh, it's about the hackney of the past. It's not about the hackney of today. So to that extent, it doesn't represent the hackney of today. But we tried to do that as well as we can. But knowing that there were bound to be limits to that, that's one of the reasons that we've said right up front in the book, this is where uh, we want you to get in contact with us and suggest um, more people. But there are certainly uh, black women and other women of color in the book. Thanks. When did you, oh, sorry, oh, I was gonna, um, ask when, sorry, someone else go. Go ahead, Amy. No, so at the end of that question was, how many women of color were involved in putting the book together? That was it. Um, we approached it. One of the things that happened was that we uh, got together as women from the Hackney Society and Hackney History, decided to do it, 
And then we went straight into lockdown. So we approached all kinds of community groups uh, online. We are, I'm afraid we didn't get a response. That's not so surprising. You need to be able to go out and talk to people. And it was lockdown and we weren't able to do that. I was gonna ask Wendy on that um, history, did you have a kind of um, a cutoff point as to what is history? I mean, I'm like a historian kind of in my own right and I do 1980s and lots of people would consider that that wasn't history. Um, but, you know, so did you did you have that in mind and, and that probably affected that representation in the book, maybe did it? All the women are dead. So, so you know, that was that was the only criteria. And of course that means that most of the women that, that are available to you um, are from, they're, they're not women of today. If we were taking women of today, it would be a different cut. But of course there were, unfortunately, women like Khadija who died at 24. Uh, I think Benjamin was the next question. Is that right, Roshni? Yes. Um, so that uh, Benjamin's asking um, Rose from Sister Space, how many people have been involved with Sister Space so far, and usually what what support do they get? Uh, the the figures for um, for women involved in Sister Space, um, it's it's not forthcoming. We have periods. Um, we have periods where you have a, a load of women, depending on obviously what's going on at any particular time. If we're talking about COVID, for example, um, our footfall has gone up like about 300% when it comes to COVID and black women and what's been going on. Um, we have different sectors of women. So we now have the Windrush, the women of the Windrush generation We've been paying a lot of uh, attention uh, to them and with them. And we've also got pockets where you will have, um, as we were talking about, young girls um, going through domestic abuse. Plus that includes um, gang, you know, uh, children that uh, have got caught up in, in gangs and things like that. So we don't have, uh, you know, a, a, a specific figure but what we do do in um with work um it's it's everything is based about the needs of the woman it is tailored it's like uh what's that word that bespoke the service is is is, is tailored to the needs of the woman at that particular time because uh, we were saying um uh, we have so many other issues that are entwined with the domestic abuse so they come with a domestic abuse, but it's just not that it will be domestic abuse. There will, there will be immigration issues. Um, there will be racism issues. There'll be discrimination issues. Um, so it's not, it's not as simple as domestic abuse by itself. It never, and it never has been. And this is why we were talking about, you know, like her story and us telling our story um, about it. So, you know, there's, um, we, we got, um, sometimes people just need um, emotional support. They may need legal, legal support. Um, uh, as we say, counseling, 
uh, where we cannot where we cannot help we will signpost women to other um, to other services um, mainly African heritage services um, to help them but we do work with a wide range of services be they black white uh, pink or yellow the the, the every every service is African centered. Whatever we do, it's African centered. It will be familiar. It will be something familiar to a woman. So if we get somebody from from East Africa, for example, there'll be there may be there may be language issues. There may be religious and, and other cultural issues, and so we have to tailor um, that service to those needs. Um, Rose, Olivia is asking if there's anything that uh, we can do to support Sister Space beyond signing uh, petitions and donating. So, um, so obviously it's really important that we do both of those things, but um, anything, uh, what else can we do? Um, the other things we can do is, one, something basic but so powerful um, is getting involved in um, is is looking at the whole the whole politics around um, black women's experiences. We are doing, as we say, we're doing research. We need we really need people to come forward and talk to us. I think we got um, on on the website and on Instagram. We've got a Survey Monkey questionnaire on there, for example because we find if we don't tell our stories, then nothing changes. So we need, we need, we need your stories, for example. We also need, um, we need people to, to look, to, to go on our website and look at all the different areas that we have that we need, uh, we need, we need to talk about, that we need to focus upon. What help can you, um, what 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 ideas uh, do you have that you think could be also incorporated into what we're doing as well? Um, donations, donations are always needed. Um, it, we 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 donate clothes. We run a food or we distribute food also. But with things like clothes and um, toiletries and everything, and I don't have to tell all you all you women there um, about needing, um, needing sanitary wear, um, needing, you know, your deodorants and things like that. Um, new clothes, we find, we think it's very, very important that if people are going to donate, that they donate new clothes because a lot of women who are in, 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 in domestic abuse situations, a lot of them, may not get new clothes. And if we keep giving them um, a secondhand or used clothes, it just keeps them in the same place. Giving them something new and giving them, um, you know, those little donations, it makes a big difference. Lift up the spirit, makes you feel that um, people are out there and they care and and, and so on. So yeah, so it's like donations, 
it's like helping um, with the survey and um, research uh, that we're doing out there and just um, keeping keeping the conversation alive uh, and, and, and you know, the whole political thing. We need a lot more um, African heritage women and girls actually looking at that. This domestic abuse bill that's coming out, you know, uh, things like that, because nobody ever asks us. They just say what they want to say and people need to kind of really look at it and, and, and kind of get involved in, in, um, in, in those aspects of it. Thank you, Rose. I think, I think that's it for questions. Um, do you have a poll, Amy? Um, yeah, so I'd just uh, like to say thank you to our speakers again today for attending and sharing your stories. And again, and most of all to our wonderful participants, thank you for those who've come week after week. Um, I've really um, enjoyed sharing this journey with you. And if you've just joined tonight, thank you again. Uh, we'll be putting up the recordings of previous sessions on the website, which I think you'll probably get notified of in your email. Um, and yeah, it's been, it's been a brilliant six weeks. Uh, yeah, thank you so much. Thank you so much, everyone. And um, as we mentioned, we'll share the PowerPoint with the link. So if you want a copy of the book that Wendy's put together with Hackney History, then you can get a copy. And if you want to support the campaigns here, then you can hire. <laughs> uh, and if you want to learn more about um, Harini's work, um, then you can. That'd be great. Um, thank you so much. And um, I'm sure that this won't be the last of her stories, things that Roshni and I do. So hopefully we might see you again in the future. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Good thank night. you. Bye. 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 Bye.